My name is Dr. Reese Granger. Welcome to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. The following three or four episodes, we're going to do a deep dive into what is concussion and what happens on a cellular level. This will build off the brief description that we gave last week, as the next four episodes, we're going to break down the normal function and structure of a neuron, action potentials, and everyone's good mate, old ATP or adenosine triphosphate. Once we understand this, we can discuss what takes place on a physiological level, resulting in the signs and symptoms that we see, hear, and correlate to concussion. This episode is going to be extremely content heavy. I cannot put it any other way or simplify it or try and break it down more than what I have for those who are new to biology and cellular structures. However, please stay with me. This will be important when we discuss potential concussion-related diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, CTE, again, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, along with the hypothesized effect of certain supplements such as magnesium and how they intend to work. Please note, I did say hypothesized. It is being researched. It does not prevent concussion. However, you look at how magnesium and calcium react with, as I said last week, with calcium entering the cell, that's why it's hypothesized. However, the bigger picture at play is that your heart needs calcium, so if you block calcium from going into the cells to prevent concussion, you're going to stop the heart from beating. Anyway, I digress. As previously stated, concussions are temporary dysfunction in neurons and a neurometabolic cascade of events by ion imbalance that usually resolves four to six weeks post-injury. Now, by injury, I mean traumatic brain injury because that's what concussion is. It's not a head knock. Okay, that word just drives me insane. Also, again, I'm going to go on and go over certain things all the time and sound like a broken record, but I believe, in my opinion, this is vitally important. As I've said before, when doing sideline assessments and concussion, Always protect the cervical spine, presume they've got a cervical injury first or it's ruled out, regardless of how obvious it looks that a possible concussion has taken place. It's always better to err on the side of caution than cause serious bodily harm or potential life-altering injuries. Now, moving forward, instead of doing special episodes, otherwise I'll be here literally every second day with things that are happening in the media, in the sports landscape, and research. Each podcast, I'm going to introduce a new segment called Cleaned Up, and yes, it's a play on words. So, with no further ado, here's Cleaned Up for this episode. Okay, so what I want to talk about in this episode is it's happened again. In the NRL, Liam Martin for Penrith Panthers went off with a Category 1 suspected concussion diagnosed by the independent doctor who looks at the footage and says, you need to get this player off the field. He's showing signs and symptoms of a concussion. Now, State of Origin's coming up. It's being played and Liam Martin's in the State of Origin side. If he got diagnosed with a concussion, he misses the 11 days or 12 days through the protocol and won't be able to play State of Origin. Out. Now, lo and behold, they've come out saying, no, it wasn't a concussion. 
they've overruled the independent doctor and the NRL said that the independent doctors that they have employed to look at concussions that have happened on the field are no more now than a concussion spotter. And again, the club doctors can make their call and overrule them. I really don't get this. It's a mild traumatic brain injury and you're putting a player back out there. I understand it's a contact sport and until you remove all contact, we're always going to have concussion. I get that. But we need to take this seriously just because you cannot see the injury. What makes this funny is Liam Martin's had dodgy hamstrings all year, okay, for lack of a better term. Yet at the beginning of the year, they rested him because of hamstring awareness or hamstring tightness. So there was no strain, there was no tear, nothing wrong with his hamstring at this point in time until he actually did later on tear it. But we're prepared to rest players for hamstring awareness, but we won't sit them out for concussion. To make this further convoluted and just give you a little bit of food for thought is interestingly enough, the NRL and AFL have both used the same study for concussion protocols, yet one sits you out for 11 days, the other sits you out for 12 days. Why is this? I don't know. As far as I'm aware, no one's reproduced this study, nor can we find it or have they released it. So if anyone finds it out there, please let me know. I'd love to read it. Now, Dr. Alan Pearce, personally I see him as the GOAT in neurophysiology in Australia, doing some amazing work, nerd out on all his research all the time, has published a paper in the British Sports Medical Journal, which I'll put a link in the show notes for you to have a read, about the concussion protocols in the AFL. Now, on this, the old protocol could be signed off a day before and the player could play by day before I mean the day before that match. The AFL again said this is too short and they wanted the player to actually miss a period of time or the next game and have their best interest at heart. Then the concussion protocol got changed from 2020 onwards to what we know it as now. And this is where Dr. Alan Pears and his colleagues were looking at the new protocol and the return to play. And they actually found this had an opposite effect in reducing the return to play times when comparing 2020 to the years of 2017, 18 and 19. In them three years, players were missing 19 days due to concussion. And by 19 days, I mean they were concussed and they missed 19 days of actually return to play training and then playing, which overall is a lot better for their health. The new protocol in 2020, when they look back at it, the players missed on average 11.5 days. Now, this is the same number as the study and the mandatory stand-down periods, which I could not find. I'm not going to draw conclusions on this. I'm just going to leave it with you and you can make of it what you will, but it looks a little bit funny. Anyway, again, I'm not here to bash the NRL and AFL because I love both sports are massive fans of St Kilda and Melbourne Storm. I understand why we got contact in contact sports. We're always going to have concussion. I'm just here to preach to take this injury seriously. Now that concludes Cleaned Up for this week. Back to the episode. So 
So let's look at the topic of normal cell functions in the terms of neuron. So almost all animals, humans included, have a nervous system. These specialized systems allow the transmission of electrical impulses across neurons and nerve cells. Humans known as vertebrates, like rats where most concussion studies first take place, their nervous system has two components. A central nervous system, commonly referred to as the CNS, this comprised of the brain and the spinal cord, and a peripheral nervous system, which is known as the PNS, which controls all other sensory and motor components, such as your arms and your legs. We have roughly around 10 billion neurons, give or take, don't quote me on it, which all send and receive electrical signals all over our body, and these neurons can be further broken down in their name, function, what they do. So a couple of examples of these are you've got sensory neurons, these provide a stimulus back to the brain about the state of the body and environment. So like when you're touched by the wind on your skin, it's in the name, they sense things. Motor neuron, again, name states, motor, central nervous system, sense of the muscles to create movement. Interneurons, these are like a halfway point. They collect and resend information from one neuron to another. And you've also got glia cells and a couple of others. Now, I'm going to describe the structure and function of a typical neuron which will be important for next episode. It's a little bit hard to kind of conceptualize and explain. So if you can pull up a diagram of a neuron on the internet and go through and have a look with me as I'm explaining this, it'll make a lot more sense. So neurons connect to each other and transfer signals. You have a cell body which contains the nucleus in the middle and little organelles which a lot of all other cells have. Around the outside of the cell, you have these tree-like branches, projections, more like. They're called dendrites, which connect all the signals or electrical impulses being sent to the cell. The bottom of the cell body have this tail-like projection. At the start of it, it's called an axon hillock, and then this axon further transmits signals down the tail-like projection, and the rest of the tail's wrapped in this sheath-like substance called the myelin sheath, and it insulates the nerve cell. These little segments separated by what they call uh, nodes around here. This allows for faster transmission of these electrical impulses or messages. It's the way to describe it, it's like skipping a stone across water. Okay, so the myelin sheath is there, so these electrical impulses bounce over, so they travel quicker and faster down these neurons so when the message finally gets to the end of the tail there's another branch called terminal branches these each have a synaptic button which transmits the signal to the next neuron and the next dendrite and the process starts again now this happens to billions of neurons at a time so in a nutshell that's literally a neuron then we got old mate atp adenosine triphosphate this substance is an organic molecule which is made in the mitochondria or as everyone loves to say the powerhouse of the cell and ATP is created through these chemical reactions and cleavages of other molecules called glycolysis. It's a metabolic pathway which converts glucose or sugar into pyruvate which is carbon providing us energy in the form of ATP. This happens via oxidative metabolism 
which is oxygen dependent and it produces around 32 to 38 ATP molecules. Anaerobic glycolysis is based on limited amount of oxygen, extremely inefficient and only gives us two ATP molecules. Just park these numbers for a little bit and I'll remind you in the following episodes, but this becomes important. Now, ATP is responsible for everything we do from movement, muscle contractions, providing energy for all the chemical reactions in our body. It's basically the body's currency of spending, but it's in the form of energy. ATP concentrations maintained within a range of narrow values. So when ATP levels are inadequate, chemical reaction stops. That's it. It's done. Kaput. And in our brain, when we're not concussed and just healthy in day-to-day life, we usually take up about two-thirds of ATP just to continue our function. Now, I've oversimplified this and probably confused a lot of people, and I do apologize for that. Now, let's move on to action potentials. But before I go through action potentials, I just want to first describe some ions. Okay, so the main ions we have in action potentials are potassium, calcium, and sodium. So potassium is an electrolyte responsible for membrane potentials. Calcium, as we all know, has to do with bones, teeth, a little bit of blood clotting and muscle contractions. Important to remember this. You look at muscle contractions when someone's died or passed away, rigor mortis, it's because of all the calcium running into the cells. And then we got sodium, which is there for membrane potential and ion balance with the membrane. How do I describe action potentials without putting you to sleep? I say this with the greatest respect as people do PhDs on this one aspect of the topic and I'm going to describe this to you within five minutes. So a neuron's inactive, just chilling there in a polarized state, waiting for an electrical signal or nerve impulse to come its way. Polarized being more negatively charged on the inside and positively charged on the outside. So basically the same conditions as the battery now that I think about it. Anyway, this is called a resting membrane potential. This is created by old mate, the sodium potassium pump. He or she, I'm sorry, I always give them names. It's how I've learned over the time. Removes sodium or the Na plus ions outside the cell and some of the potassium, which are K plus ions inside the cell. Or last episode, keeps them in separate rooms. More sodium outside than inside and reverse with potassium. Keeps everyone happy. We now get an electrical impulse that comes our way to create an action potential. This stimulus causes sodium channels or gated ion channels to open or, again, last episode, opens the door. Sodium charges inside the cell and becomes more positive. If the signal is weak, nothing happens. It has to hit a certain millivoltage pretty sure it's negative 50 or 55 off the top of my head around about that if it doesn't hit that millivoltage nothing happens it's just a little blip once it gets over that action potentials kicked in action potentials go on all or nothing so you can't just half have an action potential and then it reset it's once it's gone it's gone the horse is bolted okay if the signal's strong enough to break that threshold the action potential is triggered. 
So more sodium comes in to join the party. The cell depolarizes, meaning that inside the cell is now more positive and the surroundings outside is now negative. We've now hit a peak action potential or peak voltage due to the action potential. Sodium channels close, potassium channels now open and potassium moves from outside the cell causing hyperpolarization. So hyperpolarization point is if you think of uh, how do I describe this? You got a baseline, you got minus 50. Okay, now you've hit the action potential, it's gone up, you've gone to the top, it's peaked, you've gone over the hill, now you're coming back down the other side and hyperpolarization now is at the point where it's below that minus 50 to 55 and just say we're about minus 75, that's hyperpolarization. And we're now also back at a resting membrane potential, however it's lower than what it should be because of the kids are in the wrong room so to speak. Potassium and sodium aren't where they're supposed to be. So now we have the refractory period where old mate, sodium potassium pump, kicks in, starts to work. He puts everyone in the right rooms, okay, as we said last week. So he gets potassium on the inside and sodium on the outside and makes the kids go back to where they're supposed to be so they don't fight. Everything's all ready to go again. Everyone's happy. It's important to note the sodium-potassium pump does not work for free. Okay, everyone needs to get paid. He likes to be paid in the form of the currency that we discussed earlier, ATP. This is because he has to push these ions against their concentration gradients and it doesn't come easily, so he's always pushing them up a hill, so to speak. Now I know I've oversimplified that and I'll probably get some heat in my description. I was just trying to explain it as easy as I could without a picture or a diagram in front of you as a listener. So again, if you Google an action potential, you'll get what I mean by the, the peaks and the voltages. Now, also after an action potential, a neuron releases a substance called glutamate which is a chemical messenger which further stimulates the nerve cells, sending the message along. What makes glutamate so special is it can bind any neuron that we mentioned earlier. Pretty much has the keys of the house or the keys of the city, so to speak. Then in order to calm him down when he starts to run right or set all these messages of the glutamate, there's a chemical called GABA, which is gamma aminobutyric acid, which allows you to relax. I'll park this for now as this will be discussed in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. So basically what I've described over the last 20 minutes is just the fundamentals that we need to know when talking about concussion on a cellular level. Everything I've described is a normal function. So in next episode we can describe the abnormal function of what happens in a concussion. I have oversimplified all this. Sorry if I've confused you even more or not explained it in a way that's helped to understand, my apologies. And what I'll do is I'll leave a link in the show notes to some further materials to try and describe and explain what we've talked about in this episode. Also, hope you enjoyed the new segment, which we're going to be doing moving forward on every episode cleaned up. 
and I look forward to seeing you next episode to talk about what is a concussion, part two, and abnormal functions of the cell that happens post-concussion. And that concludes today's episode. Even though I'm a registered chiropractor, all the information provided today is based off my interpretation of the research and is of my opinion and my opinion only. This is not a substitute for professional medical advice of your doctors or physician. If you believe you are suffering from something similar or the injuries discussed in today's episode, please contact your medical practitioner. I am your host, Dr. Reese Granger. Thank you for listening.